You are listening to the Piedmont Church Podcast. To learn more about Piedmont Church, including our gathering times in Macon, you can visit us online at piedmontchurch.net. We paused our series in Zechariah for a couple of weeks, and we're going to dive into definitions of love in the Bible. And so over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at the, the, the most popular, the four loves in the Bible. And so I, I'd encourage you to lean in. Uh, it's going to be a, a fun couple of weeks. We're going to have some, some fun while we unpack what God means by love. And, and here's why sometimes we have to do this, because in our language, there's really one word for love, right? We can love pizza, and we can love our kids, and we can love football, and we can love our spouse, but Lord willing, we love all of those things differently. But somehow, we only have one word, love. I love you, Amy. I also love a buffet, right? (laughs) And that probably wasn't a secret to most of you, but I hope that I love the buffet and my wife very differently. And so what we're going to be doing is we're going to dive into some deeper meanings of what it looks to be in love or what it looks to have love in Scripture. And so this week, uh, we're going to dive into this idea of eros love. So there are four big loves. There are eros, storge, philea, and agape. And this week, being Valentine's Day, we are going to dive into the first one, that's called eros. Now, this is a Greek word, and so uh, if you do a Greek word study in the New Testament, you will not find the word eros in the New Testament anywhere. You will find the principles of eros, but where we get this Greek word eros is from the Septuagint. And what the Septuagint is, it is the Old Testament in Greek. And why this matters, why do we have the Old Testament in Greek, is because there were a lot of Greek speakers who were also Jewish, and so They wanted to read the Scriptures in their own language. And then when we went to the New Testament, the New Covenant, it's also there for the believers who were reading in Greek as well. And I want to say that my hope in this study is that you and I will not only learn a deeper meaning of love, but we will learn a better definition of what it means to love God and to love people. Because that's what He has called us to do. So before we dive into the first word of Eros, I want to make sure that we're all kind of beginning on the the same platform, the the same foundation. And that is to understand that we know love by knowing God. 1 John chapter 4, verses 8 and 16 says this, Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. So, we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. We must first, before we begin to even unpack these four different types of love, we've got to understand that God, in his nature, is love. He, his entire existence is Love. See, he's not like you and I, where we think about love as almost like a a commodity. You know what I mean? We we kind of look to give or receive love. It's this thing that happens in our life, and we fall in love, or we we somehow begin to love something. 
But see, that's not God. He doesn't just give and receive love. He, in His very essence, is love. And so, by functioning in His character, He reveals that love to all of the world. And it's much more than just something that happens. See, you and I have a a base understanding of love because of our experiences. Maybe it's our family. Maybe, Lord willing not, but some parts, media. Maybe it's our uh, our neighbors around us. Maybe it's how our, our parents modeled love. But the fullness or the the full description of love that God is in of Himself, we can only learn by getting connected and closer to Him. In John 17, we see Jesus praying what's known as the priestly prayer. And in this moment, Jesus is showing us that God loved before the foundation of the world. In Romans 5, we see that Paul outlining this idea that even while you and I We're still running from God. He loved us. In Zephaniah 3, we see that God's love renews us. And so to begin to even understand these four loves, you have to begin with the premise that the full knowledge and complete overwhelming feelings of love truly come from God and God alone. That doesn't mean that you won't have glimpses or shadows of God's love outside of Christ because His grace comes and fills this world. It's called it's a theological term called common grace. His Spirit comes in. And so you and I, even outside of Christ, can have some experiences of love, but we can never fully grasp and obtain this true picture of what love is outside of a full and complete understanding of the person and the work of Christ. So that kind of launches us. And I'm, gonna, I'm just going to give you a heads up. This word that we're going to talk about today is going to make some of you squirm. Because it's a squirmy, churchy topic. It's sex. But it's also not that. And so as you're squirming and feeling awkward, just think about the guy that's talking. Because I'm sitting here talking to a room of people who are feeling awkward about sex. And so, we're going to dive into this first word, eros. It's a Greek word for love. And and if you could come away with a a quick picture of it, it, it's specifically the description of passionate love. Now, don't go to another place. Just stay right in those words. Passionate love. And it is most often used in a reference to marriage. And as I've said, you won't find this in the New Testament, the word itself, you will find the ideas and we'll unpack that a little bit later. But most specifically, you kind of find this word and definitely the attributes in what famous book? The Song of Solomon, or some of you say Song of Songs. But a, a really good way to understand Eros when we think about love is think about intimacy, so in a brotherly love type affection, we would be side by side. And C.S. Lewis talks about this in his book called Four Loves. And it's a really good resource if you want to understand these four loves to a greater depth. But in a kind of a brotherly love affection, we're side by side. But in an intimate love, we're face to face. We are eye to eye. And so we kind of get into the souls 
of each other and, and understand each other to a, a greater depth. And so we're going to be in the Song of Solomon, chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, excuse me, go ahead and turn there. If you don't have a Bible, we have a Bible in the back, and we'd love to get you one. Uh, if you'd raise your hand, we'll bring one around to you. It's no worries. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to have that. Don't feel embarrassed. We want you to be in the Word of God, and so we value that. So turn your Bibles with me to Song of Solomon, chapter 1. If you have one of our Bibles that we hand out, it's on page 323. Song of Solomon, chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. All right. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. And all the seventh grade squirms come out. For your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. Now before we unpack that passage, I want us to understand a little bit about this book and a little bit about the author to a degree. So the Song, Song of Solomon is written, obviously, by a guy named Solomon. And we're not completely sure why he wrote it, but most theologians believe, and Danny Aiken says this, most theologians believe that it was written as the ideal, as a poetic picture of what God intended marriage to be. Another theologian comparing the works of Solomon in Proverbs to the Song of Solomon says this, the book of Proverbs can be called a book for boys. The word son is used over 40 times throughout the book, while the word daughter is never used. My son, stay away from that kind of girl and don't, don't marry this kind of girl, but marry and save yourself for that kind of girl. We see this in Proverbs 31, he says. And that's how the book ends, quite intentionally. For Proverbs is a book for boys. The Song of Songs is a book for girls. And it's a message to girls that says, patience and then passion. Or uncompromised purity now will lead to unquenchable passion then. And he says this, I'll put it this way. In Proverbs, the young lad is told to take a cold shower. In the Song of Songs, the young lassie is told to take a cold shower. And so when we unpack this book, what we need to understand is certainly there's an aspect where this, this theologian believes that the books were written, one for, you know, kind of for the male perspective and one was for the female perspective. But the great thing about the Bible is all words are truth and they impact our life. And so we don't just have to read, oh, well, I'm a boy, so I'm going to go to this one. Or I'm a girl, I'm going to go to this one. All words are applicable in our life. And as you squirm and go, well, maybe I'm, I'm not in a relationship now. Maybe, you know, I'm too young to be into marriage and the idea of sex. I, I heard Levi Lesko put it like this. If you were learning to fly an airplane, wouldn't you want to do that before you were in the air? Wouldn't you want to understand the knobs and how everything works before you got in the airplane? And, you know, was it 50,000 feet or whatever it is? You would hopefully learn kind of on the ground, not in danger. And so no matter where you are in your life, whether you're in marriage, whether you are in a relationship, whether you're not in a relationship, whether you're a teenager, I believe what we're going to speak about this morning has application for your life. And maybe you can use it directly today, or maybe it comes at some point down the road. 
But God has a word for us in this text. So the first thing that we see in this text, Song of Solomon, verse 2, says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. The first thing that we see is that physical desires are not bad. Physical desires are not bad. And I want to kind of unpack this because there are three main misconceptions in the world and in some ways in the church about our physical desires. Misconception number one. That sex is a natural appetite. Or put another way, sex is a natural appetite similar to other natural appetites. One theologian says, our pastor says it like this, a lot of people out there look at sex as just one of our natural appetites. We have a natural appetite for food. We have a natural appetite for sleep. We have a natural appetite for sex. So when you're hungry, you eat. When you're tired, when you sleep. When you're lusting, you go ahead and take care of that. It's natural. And it's just like it's natural to say, to sample different foods. And it's natural to enjoy different sexual experiences. In fact, if sex is just merely a natural appetite and you repress it, it's unhealthy, right? And what we need to understand is that sex is not just this natural appetite that we can compare to eating, drinking, sleeping. It is so much different and in some ways better than that. What we need to realize is that sex is a gift to us. I mean, God could have made it really uncomfortable. He could have made it unenjoyable. He could have made it just kind of like this thing you have to do to reproduce, but yet God didn't make it that way. He made it pretty enjoyable. Matter of fact, the only time that we see unenjoyment is from the effects of sin. Genesis 3.16 says that there will be childbirthing pains that come from this. We have disease that can come into these things. But none of this happens pre-fall. So we have this gift of sex. And God gave us the gift and the natural desire, not appetite, but desire for sex. But He did so in connection with marriage, with our unity as man and woman. Genesis chapter 2, verse 22 says, And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. This is like a sentence in Hebrew that is pretty strong, like sexually. Like, he has a connection to her. And it says, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man, here's, the, here, here's what we see in marriage, shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Sex is not just some appetite that we will fill like we do with our bellies when we're hungry. Or like we do with our sleep when we're tired. It is so much more than that. So misconception number one, sex is not just, or is not a natural appetite. Misconception number two, sex is a necessary evil. Now there are some that believe this. If you follow the church's history, the church taught this. Did you know in medieval Christianity... 
that there was only about 83 days a year that the church said a man and a woman, married couple, could have sex. 83 days. And some of you go, I'd be blessed with that. I hear you. I understand, but what you need to understand is that they would look at it and they would say, hey, so 40 days leading up to Christmas, not happening. Before Easter and after Easter, not happening. Eight days after Pentecost, not happening. On the eves of feast days, these celebrations, not happening. On Sundays, to commemorate the resurrection, can't do it, married couple. On Fridays, because you want to recognize the sacrifice that Jesus paid in his crucifixion, not happening. During pregnancy, not happening. 30 days after birth, not happening. Oh, and by the way, if you had a girl, 40 days. I don't really understand that one at all. And then there's some other times that I'm not going to talk about because it gets weird. But there's only 83 days in an entire year where a married couple could come together and be one as we see in the Bible. And that produces this idea that sex is like this necessary evil. Like we have to reproduce, and yet somehow we enjoy it, but we should feel guilty about the enjoyment. This is not healthy. This is not what God intended. And even today, parenting is hard. I've been in youth ministry for forever, it feels like. My, my father was a youth pastor. My first position in ministry was in youth. And I've seen time and time again, and I understand completely the pressures behind it, but I've seen time and time again parents neglecting to teach their children about sex. And every time it happens, there are some sort of consequences that arise from that. Some parents just say, hey, well, when they ask me about it, I'll just say, don't worry about it. It's something for when you get married. Parents, you need to have a conversation with your child about sex. And unfortunately, it's going to come before you're ready. But let me ask you this question. Would you rather the media culture and the world around your kids define sexuality or would you rather the Bible and your beliefs of what God says define sexuality? Because they are going to get a definition of sexuality. You, as the parent, can be like the bumpers at the bowling alley and try to keep them between the lines and say, here's what it is and here's what it isn't. But it's going to take awkward conversations. Grandparents, it may take awkward conversations with your kids saying at some point you're going to have to have a conversation with your kids. It's not my job as a grandparent to do it. It's your job as a parent, but you may have to push them. Because for some reason, we've said, oh, they'll get it. I got it. No one talked to me about it. I understand it. God's told us to lead in our households. And so it's not this scary thing. Or it doesn't have to be this scary thing, I should say. It's, it's a gift from God. Sex is not evil. It's great in the right context. The third misconception. Sex is an identity. In our passage, you can clearly see a wife, a woman, longing for her husband, this man. But here is what many today 
are saying about sex in their identity. They're saying this. It's a way to find myself and be myself. It's a way to explore who I am and what I like. If I want to reserve sex for marriage, that's cool. That's my choice. If I want to pursue it outside of marriage, that's cool. That's my choice. If I want to experiment with different kinds of sexuality, that's cool. That's my choice. If I want to be Caitlin rather than Steve, that's cool. That's my choice. If I want to explore pornography, if I want to move from conquest to conquest, it's a way for me to be myself, irrespective of what you believe and what you think. When we begin to look at the act of sex as more than it really is, we will be led astray in search for meaning among the meaningless. The first thing that we see in our text is that this physical touch that she desires is a good thing. But what we'll see as we unpack is that this desire is fueled by eros. The desire in and of itself is not the goal. The touch is not the goal. But eros is fueling the desire. C.S. Lewis, as I mentioned, wrote this book, Four Loves. And he, discussed this, he discusses this, this idea of eros. And, and then what he compares it to is this thing called Venus. So you have eros, which is this idea of kind of being in love. This, this connection eye to eye. I see you, right? And then he says there's this thing called Venus. And it's, it's the animalistic, purely physical, no, you know, no emotional connection at all, the act of sex. And what times most people do is they, they say that they're connected. Or, you know, that, that, that somehow the, the, the Venus is fueling the Eros. But in reality, what we see in Scripture is the exact opposite. We see that one can have true eros, true love, being in love, that, that intimacy, that eye-to-eye connection without ever experiencing Venus. Technically, one can have Venus without eros. But the two were created to complement each other. And if we're honest, in our, in, in our, in our guts, in our souls, Sometimes when we feel like we're desiring Venus, what we're actually desiring is eros. Intimacy, love, connection. So we go back to the text. First, uh, chapter 1, Song of Solomon, verse 2. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. And then she goes on to define why she wants that physical connection. For your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your smell, who you are. Your name is oil poured out. Is that because she likes his name? No, she loves his character. She loves who he is inside. So the second second thing that we see in this text is that her desires in his physical being are not driven simply by the physical nature. They are driven by his character and his nature. True desires in the physical are driven by one's affection for the other person's character and nature, not the other way around. Don't get me wrong. Venus can be solely driven by the physical. 
But what she is describing in this passage, what we see through Solomon describing this marriage, this relationship, this connection, is not purely physical. It is so much more. Let me give a, a clearer picture so that we can begin to kind of understand biblically how this deep love, this intimate love of Eros is kind of weaved throughout Scripture. So in Genesis 2, God gives us marriage and sex. And this is, let me say this, lean in, don't miss this, because you'll leave here, if you, if you miss this, this weaving theology here, you'll leave here with no greater understanding of how you are to be intimate with your spouse and how you are to be intimate with God. In Genesis 2, God gives us marriage. And marriage is the covenant between one man, one woman, coming together to God. In our culture, by this point, eros could have already happened, right? Being in love, this deep intimacy has already been established most of the times. Why? Because we have dating and we have, we have you know, uh, you could even call it courting. We, we have a process now. We have, you know, being engaged and all this. But think about their day and time. Did, did they have that process? No. Most times... It was just an arrangement of, hey, you got a goat, I got something over here, let's switch. Or it was an authority of power, hey, let's line our houses together. And so Eros was not established at that point. They didn't get married because they were in love most of the time. Eros was something that had to be developed. And Venus, in some ways, was forced on them. And so they had to learn what it meant to be one man, one woman coming together in front of God. And this is important because this will help us establish an understanding of what marriage and eros does together. Because marriage is not simply based on love. I think you and I living in our world today, in our culture, we go, man, marriage is all about love. Yes and no. Biblically speaking, John Piper says this, most foundationally, marriage is the doing of God. And ultimately, marriage is the display of God. Marriage is patterned after Christ's covenant relationship to his redeemed people, the church, and therefore the highest meaning and the most ultimate purpose of marriage is to put the covenant relationship of Christ and his church on display. This is why marriage exists. If you're married, that's why you're married. If you hope to be, this should be your dream. Now, John's a little rough around the edges, so he always kind of pulls love away a little bit more than I, I would. But I think if you strictly stick to the Bible and try to find a text that says, hey, when you go to find that mate and get married, you should be head over heels in love with them. It doesn't necessarily say it that way. It doesn't necessarily say, hey, you should have an engagement time where you, you know, figure out how this is going to work, you have those conversations, and, and you go to premarital counseling, and you do all these things, and then you get hitched. That's not really what we see in Scripture. 
A lot of times we go to 1 Corinthians 13 at a wedding and you'll stand up there and talk about what true love is and it's patient and it's kind and all these other things. And you read that text in context and in many ways it's talking about the church and the gift of tongues and, and miracles and all these other things. You go, hold on, what does what what love got to do with all this? So where does Eros come in in our marriage and in biblical theology? Well, there are two passages of Scripture that outline arrows for us really well. They give us a solid picture of what it means to be a couple in arrows. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit everything or in everything to their husbands. Now, sometimes people like to stop there and it makes no sense. That, that's, that's, that's not the picture of Eros. He goes on. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then here's the kicker, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might be present, or he might present, excuse me, the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. To love your spouse is to put them above yourself. To, to give them eros love is to lift them up and to say, you are cherished. You are mine. I adore you. I want to be intimate with you. It is not just this constant battle. It is a place where we come and we say, I adore you so much, I'm going to lift you up. A guy named Gary Thomas wrote a book called Cherish. It's amazing. It's transforming my marriage. And he says this, to truly cherish something is to go out of our way to show it off, to protect it, and to honor it. That is an Eros love. To completely be passionate and unwielding desire to be intimate with your spouse and to lift them up in life. We're to lift that other person up. We are to show them so much adoration and support that they feel lifted. We should love them in the way that they receive love. Some of you have read the, the, the Love Languages by Gary Chapman. Great book. Because you can be trying to love someone the way you give and receive love, but if they don't feel it that way, they're not going to receive it that way. And so we need to eros our spouse. We need to figure out who they are and we need to lift them up and love them the best way they need to be loved. And then 1 Corinthians 7 is the second passage. Both of these are, are letters from Paul written to the church. One's to Ephesus, one's to Corinth. And he says this in verse, in verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which he wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation, 
for sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. What we need to see in this passage is we can easily take away from this that, oh, hey, see, see, spouse, it's time we knock boots. That's not really true. That's not necessarily what we see in that text because we're missing a couple of things. Number one, Psalms 24.1 says that your body is God's first. Psalms 24 says that this world and everything in it is his. So married people are to eros each other, and through the covenant, we are declaring that our bodies are our spouses, and not in like some sick, twisted way. But in full eros love, we are so deeply in love with them, and we long to be with them, that we trust them fully. We love fully. We have a burning desire to be intimate with them. Regardless of Venus. And so what we see in this picture, both letters from Paul, is that our marriage is constantly pointing back to God. And so our Eros love, when someone views your relationship with your spouse, they should be going, man, that's a great picture of the Gospel. That is a solid picture of how Christ came and served and lifted up the church. Because you and I are not that different from your spouse in the sense that you and I are both broken. Your spouse, as great as they are, they're broken. And yet Christ came and lifted the church up. And He calls us to love our spouse in a way that says, let's lift them up. Let's encourage them. When they're down, when they're struggling, lift them up. Put them on a pedestal. Show them that you value them. If this is your first Sunday with us, I know this was a doozy for you probably. I was, when I was preparing this sermon series a couple of months ago, I thought, when's the last time our church talked about sex. And in six years of being on staff, I don't know that we've ever talked about it. And I just thought, shame on us. Shame on us. See, God didn't just give sex to the world. You know, just the people that aren't in the church. He first gave it to His son and His daughter in marriage. and said, this is a great thing that I've given you. We all have a next step this morning. Hopefully in seeing and kind of understanding very quickly, as as fast as I could, this understanding of Eros love, you got a picture of the intimacy that God wants and desires from you. Just as Christ loved His church, He came and died. And this intimacy, this place where God wants you to lean in and see 
how much He loves you. He doesn't just want to love you from afar or even necessarily only walk side by side. He wants to see in your soul and He wants you to look back at Him with intimate eyes, with a deep understanding of who He is. And so the first step for some of us in this room who maybe don't have a relationship with Jesus is to recognize that no matter how far you've gone from the relationship, maybe you said, man, I don't even believe in this whole God thing. It's all a farce. It's a bunch of people who just believe a bunch of nonsense. I'm sitting here telling you the Creator of the universe sent His Son and died to be intimate with you. He loves you right where you are in all your failures and all your faults and all your weird idiosyncrasies. God loves you. And so turn from the things of this world, repent from your sins, and put your faith in Jesus. That's a step for some of us. For those of us who aren't married, maybe you need to repent of some Venus sins in your life. You need to understand that sex outside of marriage and pornography are sin. And they are not what God intended for you. There is a better way. You don't just have to feel sorry for yourself because God says sins of the past, the present, and the future through my blood, through my son's blood, Jesus Christ on the cross, I have banished them. So you don't just have to continue to feel sorry or addicted to whatever is going on in your life. You can repent and say, Jesus, heal me. Take it away from me. Take the guilt. Take the shame. Take the addiction away. But you have got to come to that place where you make that decision. Married people in the room. Maybe you need to repent and ask your spouse for forgiveness. I've been there. I didn't cherish my wife like I should have. I fail. And it's my job as her spouse to lift her up and model for her, my kids, the church, the people in this community, the love that Jesus has. Do I love my wife and my entire soul? Absolutely. But so much of the fuel that I've got to give her is something that I don't have. So I have to look back to Christ and say, give me some fuel today because I'm tired. I keep messing up. I can't do it right. And so my love for her is fueled by my love for Christ. But I can't just hit a switch and say, all right, we're going to make a new day. i got to look at her and say, I'm sorry. I repent. Maybe you need to do that with your spouse. Maybe you haven't lifted them up enough. Gary Thomas, I mentioned that book, Cherish. He has a prayer that I thought was so beautiful. For some of us in this world, the struggle with lust or other things in your life, he says this. Say this prayer. Lord, let my wife or my husband define beautiful to me. Let them be the standard for what I find most attractive. Maybe you need to say that prayer. Maybe you found yourself lingering in attraction or because of pornography and other things in this world, you find yourself in this loop where you're stuck. Maybe you need to say that prayer and say, God, I repent. Let my wife or my husband define beautiful to me. 
and help me give those things up. It's interesting. Even on the topic of sex and Eros intimate love, God weaves Himself into this place to say that there's no person that doesn't need to hear the goodness of God. We need to hear it in our marriages. We need to hear it in our relationships. We need to hear it even if we don't believe in God. So wherever you are this morning, your next steps are laid out. If you don't have a relationship with God, repent. Put your faith in Him today. Don't wait. If you're struggling because you're not married to understand how to put Venus at bay and really capture the heart of Eros, ask for Him to do this with you. Take steps and lean into that. Put certain barriers on what you can and can't see and what you can and can't do with your boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever. And if you're married, come together with your spouse and say, I want to run the race as Christ has laid out before us. I want to cherish you with all that I have. I want to let our marriage be a beacon, a shining light to people in this world. Not so that we can go, oh, look how good our marriage is, but so we can point people back to Jesus. Those are your steps. I'll be down front at the end of the service if you want to talk to somebody about it. We have elders in the room this morning. We'd love to help, help you in whatever process, whatever steps you need to take this morning. Church, know that God loves you intimately. and He desires to walk with you in every step of your day. Let me pray. God, I, I pray for repentance on all of our parts. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And in ways this morning we're talking about in specific in marriage and intimacy and relationships. And Lord, I pray for healing for those that need it this morning. I pray for open eyes for people to go from death to life in Christ because they have a new picture of what it means for you to love them intimately. Eye to eye, face to face. You're not just a God who's far off. You are intricately involved in our lives. I pray for marriages in this church that they'll thrive. They won't just make it by, but they'll thrive. And that we'll understand that you're pushing us and showing us a better way every single day. So God, give us the fuel to love our spouses, love our future spouses, prepare our hearts for marriage for those of us that aren't. And let us look to you in all things. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen.